children may be dismissed to junior church at this time. As we turn to, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, or a Bible on your phone app, or on your tablet, or a pew Bible, to Romans chapter 11. We're going to continue in Romans chapter 11. By way of introduction, I've read some funny things lately, and one of them might relate to the message. I read on Facebook the other day that having a daughter is like having a little broke best friend who thinks you're rich. Is any truth to that? Let me know as your kids get older. But in truth, actually, as you're on social media, and most of you are, A.W. Tozer had said this, as we look at God's word, what is the authority of God's word to us and for us? Does God's word have authority over our lives? He said, I do not want the world to define God for me. I do not even want religion to define God for me. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal God to me through the exceedingly great and precious promises he has given to me. As we look at God's word, we're looking at God's promises, which he has given to us. And, you know, within those promises, we are certainly able to talk to God and to call him father and have a relationship with God. In fact, he began, he took the initiative in the relationship with us. Two little boys were talking, and one little boy said, Are you related to anyone famous? And the other boy said, I don't want to brag, but I heard dad calling God his father. You realize how important that is, how amazing that is, that we can talk to God as Father, that we are reconciled to God, that we can have a relationship with God, that we can go to God in prayer. We don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to come to me to go to prayer. You can go right to God in prayer if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, repented of sin, you can go to God in prayer, straight to God. Straight to our great high priest. And the the book of Hebrews even says you can go with confidence. You can come boldly with confidence to God in prayer. And that is powerful. Sometimes we get used to it. It becomes old news. It It doesn't phase us. And I encourage you, let it phase you. Think about how awesome that is, that we can go right to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything. But in all situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Instead of being anxious, go to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving, presenting your your request to God. Then Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many of us want peace in our lives? Show of hands. Anybody else care about peace in our lives? I think we all do, and it's a constant struggle, especially if you turn on the news, right? And that means we need to redirect our life back to God's word and back to prayer. And let the Holy Spirit wash over us with the word of God and with the gospel. That is amazing. Albert Einstein wrote things that suggested he had some sort of a belief in God. But he also wrote of his own unbelief. His own unbelief. Uh, James Randerson says this. Einstein penned a letter on January 3rd, 1954. He wrote this letter to Eric Gutkind who had sent him a copy of his book, Choose Life, The Biblical Call to Revolt. 
The letter went, to, went on public sale a year later and has remained in private hands ever since. In the letter, Albert Einstein states this. The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change, the, change this. So obviously you can tell Einstein, Albert Einstein, as smart as he was, as brilliant as he was, was not open to the gospel and not even open to Jewish religious views. Einstein, who was Jewish and who declined an offer to be the state of Israel's second president, also rejected the idea that the Jews are God's favored people. For me, the Jewish religion, like all others, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions, he wrote. And the Jewish people, he continued, and the Jewish people to whom I gladly belong and with whose mentality I have a deep affinity have no different quality for me than all other people. As far as my experience goes, they are no better than other human groups, although they are protected from the worst cancers by a lack of power. Otherwise, I cannot see anything chosen about them. We'll pray that he changed his views and converted before the end of his life. Only God knows. My theme today is Gentiles are grafted into a rich faith going back to the patriarchs. And the reason I share that is Albert Einstein was Jewish and he was part of this rich faith going back to the patriarchs. Who were the patriarchs? Abram, Isaac, Jacob, you know, the, 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 where God first gave his promises to the people of Israel. And Jacob was even renamed Israel later on. Abram, renamed Abraham. Sarai, renamed Sarah. They're the patriarchs. And so Gentiles, non-Jewish people, if you do not have a Jewish, a biological, actual Jewish heritage, you are a Gentile. Gentiles are grafted into a rich faith going back to the patriarchs. Grafted in. Do you ever think about that, what that means? You know, think of a skin graft. If you have certain damage, they need to take healthy skin and put it over another place. And I'm sure I'm oversimplifying that. When I was in, in um, high school, they had to do a gum graft on my upper gums. They had to come in and this mad evil doctor had to take gum uh, from my lower teeth and cut it, no, from the upper mouth and cut away and put it in the bottom in order to restore, you know, healthy gums, which I blame braces on that, by the way. But, you know, it was in order to restore health and Christians like the skin or like the gums of, of the mouth are grafted into the rich faith of, of Judaism. My applications are here today. Don't be arrogant about your salvation. Paul was exhorting them, don't be arrogant. Gentiles, don't be arrogant towards the Jewish people. Don't be arrogant towards the Israelites. You came from that background when you were grafted into those roots. We also cannot be arrogant about our salvation and also do not take God's kindness lightly. This passage, this long stretch of verses, which we're going to look at today, is also an exhortation to persevere in the faith. Don't take your salvation lightly. We take our salvation way too lightly. We don't realize the mercy of God, the grace of God, the truth of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, how awesome God is. We need to persevere in our faith. We need to pray that way. Do you ever pray, Lord, make sure that I wake up as a Christian tomorrow. Lord, make sure I persevere in the faith. Lord, hold me to the fire. Do you ever pray, Lord, do not let me stray? You know, in Psalm 51, we sang Psalm 51 last week at the end of the sermon. Uh, King David, in his prayer of repentance, pleads with the Lord, do not let me stray. Do not take the Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 119, 9 to 11, similar. You can look that up later. Per
persevere in the faith. That's part of my applications today. So as we look at the context of this passage, which we'll read as we talk about it, as we look at the context, remember, this is in the section of Romans 9 through 11, and we're about to end this section. Next weekend, we will end Romans 11 with this awesome, rich doxology. It's amazing. Paul ends chapters 1 through 11 with this rich, worshipful doxology, praising the Lord. And you know what's funny? Because he even praises the Lord for mystery. Do you ever praise the Lord for mystery? Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth. Paul did not even know how to respond to all this theology. He just says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Still verse 33 of this same chapter. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. We'll look at that passage next week. It's powerful, though. I encourage you to read ahead and read that passage. Paul ends this these chapters on theology with worship. And then he goes into the implications, which are our actions. But beginning in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, Paul had been answering the question of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Why did they reject Jesus? In the beginning of Romans 9, Paul said that he would be willing to be accursed for the sake of his brethren. Romans 9, 3. Let me ask you, because we ended last Sunday's message talking about evangelism. And the reason I had you come forward was because I wanted you to see that you're not alone. There's a lot of people at Bethel Friends and across this country and across the world who care about the gospel and who care about evangelism. But I want to ask you, do you care? Do you really, really care? Paul said he would rather be accursed, meaning he would rather go to hell so that his brother and the Jewish people would be saved. Now, Paul knew that was hyperbole. He knew that he could not take their place. The only person who could take someone else's place was Jesus, and he did that. He went to the cross for us. But how much do you care that your brothers and sisters, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, your coworkers, how much do you care that they are saved? Does it bother you when they stray? Does it bother us not just to anger when we see, you know, a very worldly, very secular worldview, but does it really bother us to the point to prayer and where we recognize part of having a biblical worldview is recognizing the real answer truly is Jesus. It's not just a Sunday school answer. It's just not just a VBS answer. It's not just a kinder church answer. I mean, I hope you know what I mean, you know, in kinder church or junior church or children's ministry that kids realize real quick the answer is always Jesus. But that's not just a pat answer. It's not just a, you know, one of those cliches. It truly, Jesus truly is the answer. You're enemies with somebody. There's eternal strife there. You have a difference of opinion. Either one or both of you need to know Jesus. And if there's still an opinion, either one or both of you need to grow up in Christ. We can disagree agreeably, but to have internal strife in a relationship is not Christian. Go read Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. We're supposed to be different. And it's shameful that we're not. It's shameful that we're not. It's shameful the way, the way Christians can be so mean. But part of having a biblical worldview is recognizing when you see immorality out there, I'm talking real immorality, really condoning immorality, really condoning sin, really exalting sin and sinfulness, really, really even giving hearty approval. Romans 1 says they don't only do these things, they give hearty approval to those that do them. When we see that, part of having a biblical worldview, viewing, viewing the world through the lens of the Bible, part of having a biblical worldview is recognizing what they really need is Jesus. They have faulty vision because they don't know Jesus. They have a faulty worldview because they don't know Jesus. And then once they know Jesus, they need to grow up. And if, and if you have a worldview that's contrary to Scripture... It might speak to your spiritual immaturity. We always got to go back to the Bible. What does the Bible teach? The Bible reframes our thinking. And Paul was saying, with his biblical worldview, 
He really wanted his brother and his ethnic group, the Jewish people, to know Jesus. In Romans 10, 1 through 2, Paul shared his heart for Israel that he was praying for their salvation. That's the first thing that we always need to do. If you have friends or family members or loved ones who, who don't know Jesus, we better be, you better be, I better be, we all better be praying for those people to know Jesus. Because it starts with God. It starts with the Holy Spirit impressing upon them uh, to know him. In Romans chapters 9 and 10, Paul was showing that God is being consistent with his promises. Remember, they're asking, why didn't the Jewish people accept Jesus? What's going on here? You know, Jesus was their guy. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus had Jewish ancestry. You know, why did they reject Jesus? And Paul was showing through all of these Old Testament passages that God was being consistent with his word. God had prophesied 700 years through Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, that there would be a remnant. Of, Jew, of, of Israel to remain. God had prophesied through Isaiah that Jesus would be a stumbling block to the Israelite people. But you know what? God had also prophesied that there would be a remnant. There would be a remnant. And Paul's going to continue on that theme. In Romans 9, 30 through 33, it was specific about, the G, about Jesus being a stumbling block. Last week we looked at Romans 11, 1 through 10. Paul shared that God did preserve a remnant. Paul was part of that remnant. Remember, remember we talked about that. You know, God had not rejected Israel. No. God had preserved a remnant. So now as we look at verses 11 through 12, we are going to see that salvation comes to the Gentiles to make Israel desire a relationship with Jesus. In verse 11, Paul begins with a question, and, and then in this question reverse back to the previous verse. Let's look at verse 11. Paul says, so I ask... Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, I like that word picture. I mean, imagine yourself. You're watching this sports event, this athletic event, and you see somebody trip and stumble. And, you know, that slows them down, but, eventually, but they don't fall down all the way. They catch themselves, and they run in, and they get the touchdown. I have in my mind, it wasn't really a stumbling, but it was the immaculate reception. You know, Pittsburgh Steelers history. They're playing the Raiders, right? Wasn't it the Raiders? And uh, wasn't it the Raiders, Bill? You're no, you were shaking your head no. And, you know, the owner of the Steelers had already walked downstairs, thought the game was lost, and Terry Bradshaw throws this pass, and it's deflected, and eventually the guy catches it and takes it in, and they still debate whether it was really a catch today. But my point is, they thought, he didn't literally stumble, but they thought the game was over. They thought it was over. And Paul is saying right here, did Israel stumble to the point where they fell down, to the point where the game is over for the Israelites? And Paul is saying, no, they did not stumble to the point of falling down. By no means, Paul says, he is emphatic. Rather, through their trespass, through the Israelites' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to us, to the non-Jews, so as to make Israel jealous. We see a purpose right there. God had a purpose. Through their stumbling, through their hardness of heart, the Gentiles have been saved. The Gentiles are to make the Israelites jealous. That is to desire salvation. God, Paul is saying that God wants to make the Israelites see the Gentiles knowing Christ and be jealous, saying, I want what they have. Look at verse 12. Now if their trespass, 
the Israelites trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, if their trespass, as the Israelites trespass, means riches for the world because the Gentiles, the nations are saved, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, their failure uh, to, to follow Jesus, to accept Jesus means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is a how much more argument. If their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is meaning if by their sin, which is rejecting the Messiah, means that others are saved, how much more great will it be when this partial hardening is over and the Jewish people are again included in God's plan? Later on, God is, Paul is going to say that there's a partial hardening of the hearts on the Jewish people. That will be lifted at some point. There's a professor, Dr. Constable. He says, Paul here anticipated the national repentance of Israel that he articulated later. In verse 26 of this same chapter, verse 26 of this same chapter, Paul is going to say that this partial hardening will be lifted. And he's going to say all Israel will be saved. Now, it doesn't literally likely mean all, every individual, but, but many. There will be masses of Israelites that will be saved, and we'll talk about that next week. God promised to bless the world through Israel. You can trace that back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So how much more blessing will come to the world when Israel turns back to God than is coming to the world now while she is in rebellion against God? Remember, this is all about God's plan. Paul addresses the Gentiles in the next few verses. He says, don't forget, you are grafted into, Ju into Judaism. Don't forget, Israel, uh, Gentiles. Don't forget, Gentiles. The blessings you receive go back to Judaism. And we need to remember that too. Look at verses 13 through 14. He says, now, I'm, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. I always love how direct Paul is. In this case, he's addressing the Gentiles. He directly says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. That means he's speaking to us. Of course, the whole, the whole letter is to us as well. But directly to Gentiles. He says, I'm speaking to you. And he says that he's an apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when Paul is saved, God tells Ananias that Paul is a chosen instrument of mind, of mind, that would be God's, to bear my name before the Gentiles. God chose the apostle Paul as an instrument of his to take his name to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul says that he magnifies his ministry. How does he magnify his ministry? The answer is that if he can provoke his people, that is the Jewish people, to jealousy and save some of them, that magnifies his ministry. And I think that magnifies his ministry because he's, an, he's a missionary to the Gentiles, but now the Jewish people are being saved too. So now both the ethnicity of the Jewish people are being saved as well as his target audience, his target mission field of the Gentiles. His ministry expands and how awesome that is. You ever think about how awesome God worked things out in the first century of the church? In Acts chapter 2, the early disciples are huddled in an upper room. And then Pentecost happens. Well, it was Pentecost anyways, but on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish holiday, means 50, 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Peter preaches, thousands are saved. 
It goes from Jerusalem to Rome and possibly Spain in the first century. And now it's here. This is it's so powerful how God in his providence worked things out. To Gentiles, to Jewish people, to both groups. On Wednesday nights, we're studying the um, disciples every other week, the apostles. You know, you probably know. The apostle Thomas, the disciple Thomas, it is said, took the gospel to India. And the gospel just went out. You know, it's amazing how God worked that out. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 takes the gospel to Ethiopia. God was working things out. and He chose the apostle Paul as a chosen instrument of his to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But Paul wants to magnify his ministry. He has a heart for his people too. Look at verses 15 through 16. He says, For if by their rejection, that's a Jewish people rejection, if, if by their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is really amazing. So if by their rejection, the Jewish people reject the gospel, and that means the reconciliation of the world. That means the Gentiles accept the gospel. In Romans chapter 5, verse 11, Paul had shared that when we believe in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. So he's saying if when the Jewish people reject the Messiah, the Gentiles are saved. That means the Gentiles are reconciled to God. That's, a, that, that's very, very important. The Gentiles are reconciled to God. So he says, what will there, the Jewish people acceptance mean but life from the dead? And now he brings up this dough illustration. Life from the dead. Paul is saying that the Gentiles are grafted in. And he's going to build on that beginning in verse 17. So Judaism is a tree. And the Gentiles are wild branches. And he says here at the end of this. He says if the root is holy so are the branches. The root is Judaism. The root is Israel. If the tree is holy because more Jewish people are saved, he is saying that the tree is more alive from the dead. Specifically in verse 16, he's saying if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, who would that be? That would be the Israelites. The Jewish people are the dough, the first fruits. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. He's saying that the foundation is holy, so the rest is holy. And what is the foundation? The foundation be the patriarchs. The foundation be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the foundation in Judaism is holy. Further, he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If more Jewish people accept Jesus, that is life from the dead. And this is because the foundation, the dough, the root is holy. It would appear that what Paul was speaking of here was a great spiritual awakening of Israel to take place at the end of human history. When Israel returns to God and he accepts her, the results of all humankind are comparable to life from the dead. Think of Ezekiel 37, and it's a, an awesome passage. If you haven't read it recently, I encourage you to later on. It's called the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, God takes Ezekiel to this valley with all these dry bones, and he says, uh, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? It's funny. Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Lord, you know. He says, prophesy to these bones. He starts prophesying, and the bones come alive. God's blessings on humanity now will pale by comparison with what the world will experience in the future when it says all Israel will be saved and this partial hardening is lifted. 
And Paul will build on this in the next section. We're going to skip to the next section. Now, the Gentiles were grafted into Judaism, but they can be cut off. Look at verses 17 through 24. And that, this is important. There, there's this example of a tree again. Paul continues to build on the root and the tree and the branches. What is the root? Judaism. What are the branches? Jewish and Gentile. And he's saying Gentiles are grafted into Judaism, but they best be careful because they can be cut off. And the, Jew- and the Jewish people, if they do not continue on belief, if the Jewish people do accept the Messiah, they can be grafted back in. Now, this idea of grafting in is really interesting to me because I can't grow a plant if my life depended upon it. Okay? So when we get into agricultural metaphors, I have to do extra research. The New American Commentary says the normal process of grafting called for cultivated shoots to be joined to the branches of a wild olive tree that had been cut back. The exposed ends were smeared with clay and bound with cloth or date straw. Now, that's very interesting to me. Did not have a clue until I read that, that they did this stuff, smearing them, putting them together. They even did that back then. The IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary says grafting of trees, adding a shoot... Of one tree to another tree, that's what they would do, is reported in both Jewish and Greco-Roman literature. Sometimes shoots from a wild olive tree would be grafted onto a domestic olive tree that was bearing little fruit in an attempt to strengthen or save the life of the tree. The unproductive original branches would be pruned off and the new graft was considered contrary to nature. And that's the image that Paul has in mind. Gentiles being grafted into the root, the the tree, the the natural olive tree of Judaism. Gentiles are grafted in, but there's still a wild, a wild shoot, contrary to nature. So Paul is expanding on this metaphor about a root and a branch. And... um, Interestingly enough, the cultivated olive tree, the cultivated olive tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. If you go back to Jeremiah 11, 16 to 17, and Hosea 14, 4 through 6, we see this idea in the Old Testament. The Jewish people are the natural branches. That's critical to understand that. The Gentiles are unnatural branches. The Gentiles are wild branches. Bless you. Paul seems to be thinking of a heavenly olive tree. All of these branches are on this heavenly tree. Some of the branches belong all the way down to the root. These are the Jewish branches. Others come from a wild olive tree. These branches are added because they believe in Jesus. However, some of the natural heavenly branches are cut off because they reject Jesus. The natural branches, those are Jewish branches, are cut off because they reject Jesus. But what does Paul say? They can be grafted back in. We must persevere in the faith. I was, I was thinking, what, what would be another illustration of this for, for, for me, for us? So I thought of this, this other illustration. Now, this is an illustration based on this passage, based on the metaphor, but this illustration ought not be confused. Uh, this is not a biblical illustration, but it's not unbiblical. Okay, so imagine a train heading for heaven and a train headed for hell. The train heading for heaven is made up of cars which are natural. The natural cars are Jewish. The Jewish cars are attached to the engine heading for heaven. But some of these natural cars quit believing that the engine, capital E, is taking them to heaven. And so they fall off the tracks. They reject the Messiah. They fall off the tracks. But then some of the cars from the train heading to hell start believing the engine of the train heading for heaven will take them to heaven. They are then... Attached to the train heading to heaven. Still, though, 
If they do not keep believing, if they do not keep, uh, keep persevering and stay attached, they will be cut off. Likewise, the cars that fall off the tracks can still be reattached. That would be the Jewish people can still be reattached to the train heading for heaven. Look at verses. Keep that in mind as we look at these verses. Keep these metaphors in mind. Verses 17 through 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, because they're grafted in, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. He is telling the Gentiles, don't be arrogant towards the natural-born Jewish branches. Imagine this. We have this olive tree. Some branches are broken off. Then there's a wild olive shoot, and it is grafted in. The wild olive shoot that is grafted in now shares in the nourishing root from the olive tree. We as Gentiles share in that nourishment from the patriarchs. Verse 18 is challenging. The Gentiles, that we're not to be arrogant toward the natural branches. We must not be arrogant towards the Jewish people. Remember, Judaism supports us, not the other way around. Again, Jeremiah 11, 16 and following addresses Israel as a green olive tree. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, he says, Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Those natural-born Jewish branches were broken off. And then Gentiles are able to be grafted in. Paul is anticipating the response. These branches were broken off. These Israelites rejected the Messiah. This gave a spot for me. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, That is true. It's true that when the Jewish branches are broken off, it gave a spot for them. He says, that's true. They are broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand, stand, through, uh, but you stand fast through faith. Stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's powerful. It's powerful about persevering in the faith. God did not spare the Israelites who rejected the Messiah. He's not going re- to spare you if you don't persevere in the faith. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You could be broken off too. He says fear. This is a strong contrast. In contrast to those broken off, you must stand fast through faith. You must persevere in faith. Do not become proud. Instead, fear. You know, there's many times the Bible says do not fear. I'll list some of them. Deuteronomy 31.8, Ezekiel 43.1, Matthew 10.31, 1 John 4.18, and many others. But this is a different type of fear. We do not need to fear if we are doing what God calls us to do. If God calls you to go be a missionary in Afghanistan right now, we do have Christian missionaries in Afghanistan right now, and we need to pray for them. They don't need to fear because they can trust God, and they're doing what God calls them to do. The, you know, the, the turmoil for the missionaries in whether any, any of these areas, Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, India, China, all these persecuted areas, that you know, they can take their life, but they will not take their eternal life. They're doing what they're called to do. They need to trust the Lord and not fear. But we do need to have a fear of, of backsliding. We do need to have a fear of not trusting the Lord. We do need to have a fear. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. A fear of falling away. A fear of not persevering in the faith. We must fear losing the faith. We must fear not living for Jesus. Paul gives the main reason of fear in verse 21. He says, God did not spare the natural branches. So he definitely will not spare us. Look at the next verse. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you. 
provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God is kind towards us, following him, living with him, living for Jesus. But he's severe if we live in unrepentant sin. We'll be showing we do not belong to him. This is a passage about perseverance. We must persevere in the faith or be cut off. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that God's kindness is to lead to repentance. In Hebrews 3, 6 and 14, it's about holding fast to the faith. I hope and pray that we all think that right here. Because I think we elevate oftentimes God's grace and forget about God's wrath against sin. And sin is utterly, entirely, completely against him. And we must not live in unrepentant sin. God is holy. John 15, 2 talks about bearing fruit or else we will be cut off. Look at verses 23 and 24, which wraps up this section. He says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? He's saying if they don't continue in their unbelief, if the Israelites, if the Jewish people return and accept Jesus the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, they can be grafted back in. God is able to graft them back in. When you get to these agricultural metaphors, these, these things about farming and planting, and it just amazes me how awesome God is. Science writer Hope Jaron shares an interesting fact about plants especially how a tiny seed starts to put down roots. The most essential thing for a plant's survival are the roots. And what is Paul saying here? We are rooted in Judaism, going back to the patriarchs. This science writer says, No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight because it's anchored in the soil. She calls taking root a big gamble. But if the seed takes root, it can go down 12, 30, 40 meters. The results are powerful. The tree's roots can swell and split bedrock and move, get this, the roots of a tree can move gallons of water daily for years, much more efficiently than any pump yet invented by man. If the root takes root, then the plant becomes all but indestructible. Tear apart everything above ground, everything, and most plants can still grow rebelliously back from just one intact root, more than once, more than twice. Christianity is rooted in Judaism. That is a strong, a powerful, a deep, a tap root, so to speak. And that's the, the metaphor that Paul is using right here. A key point of this illustration that Paul gives is to encourage the Gentiles not to be arrogant. They must understand when they are grafted in, their roots are in Israel. They are still Gentiles, but the roots of their salvation are in Israel. Let's take a moment to make some applications here. I encourage you to pray over these applications at home. The Holy Spirit may convict you of something else from this passage that I won't even mention. We must understand that God is not finished with Israel. Verse 11. God is not finished with Israel. The promise to Israel began with Genesis chapter 12, and God is not finished with Israel. 
We'll build on that next, next week. We must understand that Israel has stumbled but not fallen. Israel stumbled but did not fall down. Israel is not done. We must understand that God is at work saving Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous for salvation. We must understand that there will be a great inclusion of Israelites at some point in the future. The hardening will be lifted and there will be a great inclusion of Israelites. And we'll build on that next week. We must understand that salvation is from the Jewish people. In John 4.22, that's even stated, uh, meaning that salvation is from the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. We must not be prideful of our salvation, verse 18. And that especially is made about Israel right here. But it could be about anyone. We are all saved by the grace of God. We are all sinners saved by the grace of God. And people in glass houses should not throw stones. We are saved by God's grace. We must understand that we are grafted into a rich heritage from the Jewish people going back to the patriarchs. And I see a stern, very, very stern warning about perseverance. If God cuts off Israelites who do not believe and accept Jesus, what will he do to us if we do not persevere in the faith? We must understand the kindness of God, but also the severity of God. God does not tolerate those who do not persevere following him. Some of us really make, should take this warning. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of anything that you need to repent of today? All of us, we need to repent, whether it's gossip or a white lie or cheating. I mean, sometimes we have these list of sins and we think, yeah, we need to repent of this, 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 but not these smaller things. We need to repent of all of them. They're all dangerous. They're all deadly eternally. Jesus died for all those sins. God's holiness is not to be trifled with. We must be devoted to him. He is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Understand that all of the applications recently have been more about beliefs. But soon, when we get to Romans 12 in two weeks, they will transition to behavior. Actually, I want to say that's three weeks. There's a story told about a fleet Alex who was a horse in a horse race in 2005. And a fleet Alex stumbled and they thought this horse was gone. And the rider of a fleet Alice, Alex, um, his name um, Jeremy Rose, the rider thought they were done for. The, ri- the rider thought his horse has stumbled, his horse has fallen, and he thought I'm going to be trampled and I'm done for as well. But the horse stumbled, but the horse did not fall. The horse was able to get up. A fleet Alex not only recovered, he went on to win, win the race by nearly five lengths. The Bible sometimes refers to the Christian life as running a race in which we all stumble, and yet if we hold on, the Lord provides sure footing and balance so that we will not fall. We're called to persevere in the faith. We may stumble. Make sure you repent of sin. Make sure you do not fall. Make sure you... Cling to Jesus. Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says, is the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins. we got to go to him. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I pray. This has been a reminder to all of us. We never can be arrogant about our salvation. We are all saved by your grace through faith. And Lord God, I pray that... Uh, we are reminded, I thank you, Lord God, for the rich faith that we are grafted into, going all the way back to Israelite history, to Abraham, who you called. Lord God, may we remember that, and may we be responsive to the Holy Spirit's conviction to repent of any sin that we need to repent of and be devoted to you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
If the Holy Spirit's convicted you of anything, anytime, or even if something's heavy on your heart, a sick family member or anything, the altars are always open. You're always welcome to come forward in prayer. Amen.